Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. To a very mournful episode. Oh, Still no. watching Mayor of East Town. No. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I am a bereft Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Welcome to our wake uh, for for a character that we loved. Um, we're we're gonna we're gonna probably kick off talking about poor poor Zabel and what happened here, obviously. But if you're just joining us for the first time, what we do here and still watching is Richard and I pick a show that we're watching week to week. We break it down. We go really granular. I mean, we got a lot of suspects and theories this week. There's a lot of questions, and I haven't seen beyond this episode, so. I am in the same boat as anyone else. I have no idea what's coming next. Uh, so we're going to talk about all of that. Um, and sometimes on this show, we're lucky enough to have folks who worked on the show uh, come and chat with us. And this week we have, uh, you know, the ghost of Evan Peters. Evan Peters himself is here. You might have heard last week. I, Evan was supposed to be on last week's episode. And then I talked to him and we kind of wanted to talk about this episode instead, understandably. So we held the interview a week. And then we tried to cut out all references to Evan being on last week's episode. 
But I think we left one little vestigial reference. And so I think a bunch of people were like, where's the Evan interview? Here it is, folks. Uh, <laughs> we're going to hear it at the top of this episode. You don't even have to wait till the end of the episode to hear it. Um, so we're going to talk about that. We're, we're going to go to that probably after we, we talk about some of your emails. Um, but this is episode five, Illusions. Richard Lawson, what kind of emails do we have this week? Well, we once again got a lot of emails and we appreciate them. Keep them coming. Unfortunately, a lot of the emails we got this week are were sort of rendered moot by this episode um, because people were really basing off of episode four and everything previous. I think episode five clearly uh, solved one mystery and mm-hmm. perhaps brought us closer to solving the central mystery of who killed Aaron. Um, so yeah, we're not gonna. I'm not gonna read the emails that I think have been a bit negated by this episode, but there were a few that I think uh, definitely are still in play. Um, I like this one because it's kind of just a general assessment of the show. It's from Laura, who says she's formerly of Allentown, so she knows of of where she speaks. Um, she writes, I have come to believe that Mayor of Easttown is not a show about murder. It is a show about Mayor and Easttown. I think when all is revealed, we will see that Aaron was killed accidentally by friends or peers. Maybe she is the one who brought a gun to the park in the first place after that horrible beating she took from her ex's girlfriend. Maybe a friend tries to take the gun from her and fires. Maybe peers try to mask the accident by dumping her body in the woods. Whatever happens, I predict that this is not a murder. It's a sad state of events that happens in a down-and-out town. If Mayor's daughter is involved somehow, that will put Mayor and Easttown in a compromised position where no one is ever fulfilled. I think that is an appropriately uh, bleak (laughs) assessment of what might be going on. Um, uh, It's unclear after this episode if if Laura's uh, sort of general theory of it being an accident uh, is true or not. But I do think that, um, as we've been talking about on this podcast for a few episodes now, um, I I do think that this conclusion is not going to be one of, aha, we got the killer. I think it's going to be a lot more... um, you know, sort of resigned and despondent than, than that. Yeah. And, um, you were the one I think who pointed out early on, like to pay, to, to keep in mind the, the, what we know forensically about the scene, which is, uh, you know, Aaron maybe putting up a hand defensively, the bullet going sort of wildly and lodging in a tree somewhere, ricocheting into a tree somewhere. So it does really feel like maybe, two people were wrestling over a gun and it went off and Aaron, it feels like an accident and whether that accident, you know, was by someone who met Aaron ill in the first place or not, we can discuss. And we've got some, some prime suspects here in this episode, but um, I I do keep thinking about that, about how this is all going to be like a really sad accident. And are we going to see it? Like, are we going to, you know, this is a show that's done a little bit of flashbacks. Are we going to see what happened that night or just are we just going to hear about it? I don't know. We'll find out. Mm, find it out soon enough. Um, so kind of narrowing more into a, a, a theory. Um, this is an email from Susie uh, who says, I just finished listening to your episode for uh, Mayor of Easttown podcast. I agreed with you both that the scene with, with Ryan watching the news report was pretty strange. And I wondered if he knows something about who did it. My theory is that John Ross is involved somehow and that Frank knows something about this as well. I think if John was the father, then Frank might have delivered diapers to Aaron for John. John and Frank look enough alike that Jess might have mistaken them. Frank would cover up for John, at least about being the father of Aaron's baby. 
The show deals a lot with duality. There are so many similarities in the lives and the pasts of multiple characters. We have people in similar situations with children, grandchildren, drug abuse, and much more. We also see that people in this little town have to deal with one another despite serious interpersonal issues because they can't escape from each other, and they are all interdependent. People are willing to cover up to keep from hurting each other, like Don not telling Beth about Freddy trying to rob her. Bad things of all kinds are really close to Mare and to most of the people in East Town. The, that du- the duality motif and the inter- interdependency are both going to play into the identity of the murderer. Um, I think that's really well put, Susie. I would just maybe shift the John to a Billy. <laughs> a Billy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting. Do you think that Frank would, you know, not tell Mare? about if he knew that Billy Ross were the father of Aaron's kid? I guess it depends on which code is more, you know, yeah. is stronger. Is it do you he's don't... so Yeah, he's so indignant when she asks him about uh, the paternity test and stuff like that. And, you know, I just wonder, like, if in that moment he would tell her or if her aggression in that moment, uh, you know, I, I'm not blaming Mary for that, but, like, would put him on the back foot and he's like, I'm not, um, you know bro code you know in effect i don't know i like frank uh and i feel like they're trying to make us like frank especially in this episode but maybe that's maybe they're trying to throw me off but you know frank's uh we're gonna talk about frank and his daughter and stuff in this episode um but i don't want to believe that frank is covering well maybe 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 but billy definitely we're gonna talk about you billy all right what else we got uh, so the last thing is just a, a point of clarification uh, from Linda, who writes, regarding your curiosity about why Brad, uh, Brad and Lisby, who wrote every episode of the show, is mm-hmm. a little fixated on basketball. His family is a well-known basketball family in the Tredyfrin East Town area. Sorry if I pronounced that first town wrong. Uh, his dad played for Villanova and also in the NBA. His brother played for Notre Dame and is now the head coach for the University of Delaware. Uh, so, okay, <laughs> this is a deep family legacy that <laughs> Inglesby uh, is tapping into for both Mare of Easttown and uh, uh, The Way Back with Ben Affleck, which came out last year. All right. So that's that's the basketball mystery solved. I mean, not, not that it was a huge mystery. I just didn't know, like, how much it was. And I think it's interesting because that, that whole, that whole um, Lady Hawk legacy shot comes back in this episode when Mare is talking about, like, you know, you do one great thing, they constantly expect that of you. And they don't realize mm-hmm. you're just a, you know, you're just a human. Um, all right. Are those are those the emails that we got That's this it. week? All right. We got more. Guys... But again, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of a lot of theories that were quickly disproven. Thank you guys so much for your emails. And uh, please, we will accept all condolences cards. Direct them to Richard Lawson for the loss oh, of Detective Zabel. Um, so let's, uh, on that note, let us go now to our interview with the great Evan Peters. Who's alive? He's alive. <laughs> We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. 
Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, I'm going to start with what sounds like a very boring question, which is the question everyone asks, which is what drew you to this project in the first place? But I am very curious in your answer because this is something different for you. So I was I was yeah. interested. Well, that was part of it. It was definitely something different. Um, I, I was sent the project and it, you know, it said Kate Winslet starring in it. And, and <laughs> I was just like, uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um but yeah, it was, it, I, you know, I put myself on tape for it and sent it in and uh, it was, um, I don't know. It just, it's, it's, I, I like the idea that it was in a small town. I'm from a small town and, and I wanted to uh, play something that was, you know, pretty grounded in, in sort of the reality that I came from. So I, I, uh, I was, I was interested in playing that. And uh, again, it was, you know, a, a, an opportunity to work with Kate Winslet and sort of learn from her and, and see what her process was and, uh, and uh yeah so pretty much that what did you learn from her process i learned um details kate is a very detail oriented actress and person and uh and it 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 was very very helpful uh for that yeah i don't know how much i want to give away of her process but i but um sometimes she would walk up to me and be like, okay, so it's uh, two thirty eight p.m. and uh, we just we just came from from the Deacon's place, and uh, we probably stopped for a coffee and kind of you know had some lunch, and then now we're here and we're doing this thing. And I and I look at her and be like, damn, was I supposed to was I supposed to do that? I didn't I didn't, <laughs> I didn't prepare like that. Shit. <laughs> so it was really cool cool to work with her and really get into the circumstances of the of the story and the character, and I found it really really helpful. So, um, and also, you know, Kate is, is an amazing person and really empathetic and compassionate and looking out for everybody and a team player and down to earth and, uh, and, and, and is able to, you know, hop in and out of character with such ease, uh, that I was, I was incredibly jealous of that. Um, so it it was, it was really cool to see her balance, you know, and juggle and carry this whole show and work, insane hours and work so hard and so much and still be, you know, a delightful, lovely person. So, uh, it was, it was really awesome working with her. I was talking to, um, your director, um, who's the loveliest man. And he was saying that such a nice guy. And he was just saying that 
the character as he's written on the page, he could see someone playing that character very differently. That there is a very different approach to that character. And you guys decided together that this was the sort of bright eyed, bushy tailed sort of approach was was a good idea. I was wondering if you agree with him that there was a different tack and if you ever considered a sort of different angle on the character. Yeah, definitely. I think originally it, it, we sort of went in more uh, with this with this hotshot detective. You know, he's got this, he solved this case. He's kind of, you know, he's got the nice coat. You know, he's really sort of playing it up and he shoots pool really well. And, and uh, I was even doing like pool lessons and stuff like that. <laughs> that you never used. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I've never used. I never got good at I was like, it's going to take me five years to get good at this. I don't know how we're going to do this. Um, but, but the more we did it and, and, and for me, like, I was always like, I mean, he's living with his mom, you know, like, and he's like, he's kind of stuck and stunted and like trapped, like his girlfriend, you know, his ex has moved on. It's like five years now, you know, since, and she's got kids and a wife and shit like that. So it's like, yeah. So he sort of kind of took this thing, you know, to sort of lift himself up, you know, out of that, you know, he sort of took the, you know, from the, uh, from the, from the PI and uh, sort of took it as his own uh, solving the case. And, uh, and I think he realized that that was just the worst possible thing that he could do. So now he feels like a total imposter and like an imposter doesn't, I mean, you could play it a couple of ways. You could play it like where he's like cocky, you know, like overly confident sort of trying to make up for that. Or you could play it like, you know, he's, you know, uh, totally insecure and has severe imposter syndrome and has no idea what he's doing right here. (laughs) It's like, I can relate more to that than the other one. And it would be cool to to sort of do this weird, uh, I hate the word meta. I don't even know what it means, but, you know, sort of go in there and be like, okay, I'm going to try to learn from Kate. I'm going to try to do the best job that I can. And, you know, Colin is also going in there, trying to learn from mayor and realizes that she's really fucking good at her job and really in tune with her instincts. And I think that Colin has, has, has lost that. Uh, And so he's trying to get back in touch with that. And, uh, and I, and, and also I found it and Craig as what we, we just, it was just much funnier. Oh God, my God, I can't even talk. Um, uh, It was so much funnier uh, to have him be, this, this sort of floundering, tripping, um, you know, bumbling, I don't want to say idiot, but, but just not really knowing what he's doing with mayor who is so driven and, and, uh, and, and, and on point Uh, that juxtaposition worked really well. I thought, and and just, it was really funny how much she did not want me there. So we just kind of tried (laughs) to play up how much she, she hated having me on the case with her. Um, but ultimately you see that he really just wants to do a good job and be great and like, you know, solve the cases, you know, that he works on. He's incredibly passionate about his job. So, uh, you know, uh, I think mayor sees that in him and then, um, and his innocence, I think, and his naivete. Is that how you say it? Naivete? Yeah. Nailed it. <laughs> um, can you talk to me a little bit about, so there's a scene in episode three, this big, you know, monologue for your character drunken drunken moment that craig was telling oh, yeah. me was this sort of this really pivotal scene for your character something that he wanted to make sure really hit with the audience um so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you prepare for that how you pulled that off because i think it's the best 
drunk acting I've ever seen. Honestly. Thank you. Um, A lot of research over the years. (laughs) Uh, Hands on experience. Yeah. 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 Your twenties, you're just blowing your brains out. So that was pretty good. Uh, Just drew on all that. But I, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I always, you know, the scene was written. He's, he's really drunk. Um, I guess I, I, you know, for me, it was always kind of that secret that he was keeping, you know, he wanted to be somewhere with his life and he just, and he just wasn't. And I, you know, I think everybody can kind of relate to that. You know, you always think you're going to be somewhere and then it's just totally different and it's maybe there in some form, but it's always never what you expected it to be. And, uh, and I think him sort of stealing that, 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 well, not stealing, but really, uh, taking credit for, for the information that the PI gathered, uh, I think is, is, has been eating away at him. And so I think he's been, you know, trying to kill that with, with booze. Um, and, uh, and I think he really likes Mare. I think, I think for me, it was really also like the whole show for me and Colin is really about Mare sort of being this, there's something about her that lifts him up and brings him out of his, his funk. He's like stuck in the mud and she, there's just something about her that really, I think she's such a a good detective and so good at it that, that he's just, he's so, he wants that. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm answering your question properly. Uh, Let me ask you a really boring technical question about it. There was, I was, I was looking closely at it and your veins are standing out on your face in that scene. (laughs) Did you like, throw your head between your knees between takes or how did, how did you pull that off? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, no, I don't know. I guess that sort of happens when I get, when I get intense or emotional or something and veins popping out of my freaking head. Um, that happens when I've had too much alcohol. So I was just, I thought it was like bang on good physical work for you. So yeah. yeah, yeah. After that scene, I was, it was like the reason that we were, emotional and hugging Craig and I was because Uh I was hysterically sobbing because I thought we didn't get the scene. We didn't get it. We didn't get it. I can't do this. I'm terrible. I'm going to shadow you Craig and be a director because I can't fucking do it anymore. And he was like, okay, it's okay. It's okay. You're cool, man. I think we got it. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I think I need to move on. I can't do this. And then, uh, you know, then Mark Orba was like, oh, you know, that, that people are like kind of really liking that scene. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> so it was like, it was such a huge relief uh, to, to uh, you know, to, to read your article. So thank you so much for that. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, but, but also like, you know, what's going on with my internal um, judgment where I don't even know if it's good or not. Love that imposter syndrome. We yeah. all we all grapple with it. I think um, yeah. some of us more than others. I'm, I'm wondering um, in working. I'm wondering about the COVID break and what opportunity that gave you um, to really work on the character. And um, you know, because Greg was like, we were busy during the pandemic. By the way, we were working on the project. Yeah. Well, we had. I mean, we had like. I mean, they in March they punted it you know, to September. So, yeah. uh, we had some, we had some time off. I don't know how much time he had off. I, I think he was editing a lot of what we already shot. Right. And then, um, yeah. And then we came back and it was just like the masks and the shields and the testing and sort of this weird, 
you know, fear of, and paranoia of, of there's this, this disease around you. So it was trying to navigate that and sort of get back into, uh, you know, the Philly accent and uh, <laughs> all the weird things that came along with it. Is that another thing that you thought you didn't get was the accent because everyone has said that yours is the best one or really? one of the best ones. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> to answer your question. Yeah. Uh, definitely felt like I didn't get that. Um, no, I had a great, I had a great, um, that was another thing about Kate too. She'd be like, Zabes, Zabes, Babes, what's going on, Babes? And she's so British and you have no, like I've always seen her as American. And, and then she would pop it into it and just be like, did you get that file on Katie Bailey? Did you file a police report? <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> how, how the hell are you doing that? That is awesome. Um, I, I would, I had to listen to uh, this guy named Steve. I don't want to say his last name, but he's, he's Steve, uh, kind of a friend of the production. And, and we had a great dialect coach, Suzanne Solby, who, you know, got, got some great um, tapes of him speaking about, you know, the mums that he planted and, you know, he's going to do that Saturday and, uh, you know, for home for Thanksgiving. And, and, and he was just talking about his family and his kids and uh, for like 20 minutes and, and every morning I would listen to it. I would just wake up and make my coffee and listen to that thing. And, it, and and by the end, I was just like repeating it in time with him. And it was just so crazy. It was like Groundhog's Day. But I uh, I had to do it because I was like, I fall out of this accident so quickly. Um, and uh, it's so scary, you know, doing an accent like that because I have never heard anything like it in my life. Yeah. Ever. I didn't even know it existed. Tricky. Yeah. It's yeah. Very, it's very strange uh, and hilarious. Um, so by the end, I loved it. And, and, uh, and it was, it was fun to do, but it was like, dude, this is bizarre. Go ahead. <laughs> sure. I have to ask you about what you make of Zabel's um, death here in this, in episode five, because it's, it's shocking, not just because of it's so sudden, but it comes right after this moment where you really feel like he's learned something from Mare. He's going to go in a different direction in his life. You know, he says, like, I've played it safe my whole life to his mom. Like, where'd that get me? And then, you know, bullet in the head. I was like, I when, when I first saw it, I was like, surely it missed him. And then I saw <laughs> yeah. all the blood on the ground. I was like, no, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what do you make of that for poor Zabel? Poor Zabes. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it, I always found it just so shocking and uh, real, you know, I think, I think sickness and death and all that stuff just sort of hits you when you least expect it. So I, I feel like, I felt like it was a very interesting and real choice. And uh, you know, um, it always reminded me of that moment in burn after reading when Brad, <laughs> Brad Pickett shot, forehead in the closet and it's he did it so brilliantly because he's like his character's hilarious and he looks he like smiles he's like hey i didn't do anything bam right in the right in the forehead um but it so it's it's incredibly shocking i think uh as an audience member to watch that and i think it just adds to the reality of of being a detective and 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 working in in a field that that is you know can be incredibly dangerous uh so yeah, but it was uh, shocking reading it. Absolutely, for sure. Um, I wanted to ask you maybe one, maybe two more questions, which is uh, how did you incorporate 
Zabel's faith. Yeah, his mom's Catholic. I, I, you know, I kind of, I was, I was raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic grade school, and uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm not. I don't practice Catholicism at all. I've, you know, I'm pretty agnostic actually. I don't really know. I think is where, where I stand right now. And I think I kind of did that for Zabel too. I don't know what ended up in the edit, but um, but I think he's struggling with that because I think I think you know you see so much. Uh, darkness as a as a as a detective daily and that it that it really i think it 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 can and not for everybody but but in my in my imagination i figured it would really throw throw your uh your faith uh pretty drastically you know sort of seeing all this this awful stuff happening around you uh daily so um i think he's i think he's struggling with it and uh you know, it's a, it's a thing also like breaking away from mom. Like, you know, his mom has, is, is a practicing Catholic and, you know, wants him to be practicing Catholic. And it's sort of that again, trying to break off from your, your family and your parents and sort of be your own man. And I think that was, that was really the ultimate goal for Callan, I think is to become a man and like fucking (laughs) get your own place, dude. Time. It's time. time. You can do it. We believe in you. So it's, it was this weird, he's kind of like a man boy and mayor sort of elevates him into a, a, a man and sort of says, you know, get out of this shit. You're, you're stuck and you need to grow up and, and uh, break off from your mom and have your own beliefs and have your own ideas and formulate your own opinions. And, and uh, I think that's sort of what, what we were trying to do with that. And then my last question for you, and thank you again for taking the time today on your weekend. Of course, um, yeah. Thanks for thanks for you too. Uh, um, is you you know you've been working steadily for so long, but I'm curious if doing this project makes you want to do anything differently going forward, or you know whether it be Shadow Craig and become a director or anything else like that. Yeah, I know. Really, honestly, I t- I texted him the other day. I was like, dude, I still, you know, next thing you do, like, I want to, I want to come there and I want to, cause he's such an awesome person and an awesome director. I've never, you know, he was just so, his energy is great as you, you know, and uh, very collaborative and creative and trying new things each take. And it is, it, it was really an awesome experience working with him. So I would, I would love to shout on him. And, and I also, in terms of acting, like I really, uh, I like this sort of, I think I want to try to do some more, um, some more like really sort of still and, and kind of, uh, I don't want to call it mundane, but more like everyday life kind of projects. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been watching a lot of that stuff uh, re- recently and, and I really, uh, I really like it. It's really incredible and, and uh, authentic and, and uh and scary in, in that way and, and really moving and effective. So I, I want to try to do some more stuff like that. Um, go, go down the pipe, but we'll see. Can I ask you just really quickly uh, what, what those things you are that you're watching that you're enjoying? I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> um, let's see. I have this great list. Oh, I, I'm not even going to pronounce this right. So I'm sorry. I said, Oh, Hazard Balthazar, uh, 1966. And the whole thing, a donkey is sort of the central character of this, this film. And it's some of the best acting I've ever seen. This thing is, is just doing nothing. And it has this face and it's sort of everything that's surrounding him. That is, uh, 
it's it's so incredible and moving and effective. I, I was I was shocked. <laughs> this donkey <laughs> deserves an award. Um, but uh, and then I watched Strazek, uh, which was great. Uzak was amazing. That was just very uh, still and silent. Gummo. Oh, Buffalo '66 was cool too. That's not that's not quite in the same vein, but it was sort of. Yeah, um, intense. Yeah, intense. Very intense. Oh, A Woman Under the Influence. Great movie. Great, great fantastic. Movie. Yeah. Fantastic movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And fantastic performances and such a bizarre movie and so much time. That was the other thing, too. Like, what I'm really liking about these movies is that there's so much time. Like, it's so, there's, there's so, it's so stretched out. Like, and the little things that they do are not cut out. You know, they're in the they're in the movie and it, and it makes it so much more interesting and real and, uh, and exciting to watch. So uh, I'm really into that stuff right now. I don't know why, but, um, but yeah. I think it makes sense after the year we've had, I think those are good things to dwell on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Back to basics. So this is where we're going to start. We're going to start with with poor dead uh, Zabel. Richard, you texted me mm-hmm. after you watched this episode. I actually I knew this from the beginning because I watched all five episodes. Um, but I told you this and I just sort of want to share this with podcasters. I mean, our listeners. Um, sometimes when you get when you're pressed and you get episodes in advance, you get rough cuts. So you get uh you know, major effects still need to be done. Right. Um, and so I've rewatched this episode a couple times. So I've seen it now with the full effects done. But when I saw it, um, Evan Peters gets shot. There's no major blood splatter that happens on the wall because that's special effects that happen later. Um, and then all of the cell phone stuff like Officer Down or the like surveillance video of him definitely dead on the floor. None of that was in my episode that I watched the first mm. time because they do the cell phone stuff later. Um, and so I was like holding out hope. I was like, it seems like he got shot in the head, but I'm not ready to admit that that's what happened. Um, and then finally they showed his like a lot of blood um, and his lifeless body on the floor. I was like, I had to accept it. So, okay. <laughs> I, I, we know you're upset, Richard, and I'm upset too. Um so let's talk about that first and then maybe like narratively, what does this do for you? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of was like you, I was like Homer Simpson watching his roast pig roll through town saying, it's still good. It's still good. <laughs> and I was like, he, he could be okay. Maybe it was just his shoulder. Maybe it grazed his head, you know, and then yeah, he's very much dead. Um, I, and I think I texted you. I was like, at the minute, uh, he kissed her. I knew he was, that was it. He was, yeah. he was dead. Um, they got me. I did not see it coming. So, and I really yeah. did, you know, I appreciated, I'm assuming the sort of homage to the beginning of the really scary final sequence of Sounds of the Lambs where she's going to this house to just ask kind of innocent questions. Right. And then it dawns on her like, oh, this is the killer. Um, or, you know, in this case, at least the kidnapper. Um, and uh, that's, I thought that's why I think that's why last week I kept calling him Silence of the Lambs guy because I had uh, the sequence in mind. Yes. So I was like leaning into that. But yeah, absolutely. It feels very intentionally um, that. Okay. And it was really well done. It was scary. It was obviously sad. Um, it was interesting to watch Kate Winslet do a little bit of action. Um, I narratively, I don't know what comes of it. I mean, I think that obviously there are going to be a lot of questions about why mayor was there. 
because uh, right. she's not supposed to be there. Right. But she also did get the guy. Um, so maybe there that kind of gives her a pass for it. Um, but do I love, in a writing sense, that they have burdened Mare with yet another grief? No, maybe it's a lot for one character to have on their shoulders. Um, but I think that something this sort of shocking and uh, and violent, I think maybe needed to happen uh, lest we kind of forget how serious the stakes are with this storyline, you know, because it's not, this seems not related to Aaron's case at all, but it's really serious and it's really dire and dark and grim. And I think, you know, as a kind of way to communicate that there had to be this kind of violent uh, and fatal uh, standoff, I guess. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's interesting that it's able and something that, you know, Evan Peters talked about when I was like, why, Um, you know, as he was just talking about death and how this episode treats death in general, um, that, you know, we see this old woman die, Betty Carroll, who we've met uh, before. It's the first character we met in the show, other than me. Exactly. And and then we see this young man who is sort of, I mean... Um, I asked Evan about this, but there's that line where, you know, he says to his mom, like, I, you know, I put it safe all my life. What has that gotten me? And you're like, oh, my God, Ugh, yeah. be safer. You know, and the, and the whole sequence, it is very suspenseful. Mare doesn't have a gun, um, you know, and, and Kate Winslet is giving us real fear in that moment because she is defenseless. And, the you know, there, there's been this narrative question throughout of, like, why do we have this moment where Mare plants the drugs on Carrie. It just, you know, was it just to get the character in therapy? You know, there's a lot of therapy in this episode, which we'll talk about. Was it to get her in this position where this position where she's at this crime scene and she's relatively defenseless because she doesn't have a gun. Would she have been able to stop the guy before he shot Zable? Um, She noticed it before Zable did, you know? So it's like maybe, and it's just a tragedy and it's so sad. Um, And to me, it, it feels narratively, curious because um they're doing so much in this episode to like set him up but then like maybe it's just a a last confession the last confession of colin zabel where he's like i didn't solve that case in darby like his whole imposter syndrome like everything and that's that's what evan peters is saying he's like the way that zabel was initially written i think it was supposed to be much more of like a brash hotshot cop character and he and um Craig, the director, uh, you know, and I'm sure working with Brad sort of decided it was more interesting for Colin to come in as this sort of earnest, eager to please person. And the way that Evan sort of like tapped into that was this idea of imposter syndrome, this idea that he's pretended that he solved this big case and he comes in and he desperately wants to solve this case too, but does not feel like he (laughs) is not coming in sure that he can. Right. Right. And um, so that he can sort of turn that lie into a truth. Like, if he solves this case, then that lie becomes true. He has rescued some girls, you know, or, or solved a big case. So, um, I don't know. And 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 maybe it's good that Zabel's off the table in, in a certain sense, because this is called Mayor of Easttown. And I will admit that I was getting distracted by, like, Evan Peters' great and empathetic performance. And, and I thought he was a fantastic part of the show. But, like, I do, I don't mind having two episodes just to focus on Kate and everything she's doing, you know? Yeah, no, totally. And I think, you know, from a thematic perspective, what makes this um, all the more tragic is that, and, and, and in an effective way, is 
that what Zabel represented in a lot of his scenes, especially with Mare, was this kind of this this lightness that was not affected by East Town, you know, mm-hmm. and and he had an optimism to him, a sort of guilelessness um, that I think she found both obnoxious and kind of, but also appealing, you know, um, and and then the town got him, like it gets so many other people, you know, Ooh, yeah. Um, and think, I think that's yeah. so like, it's just so sad and sort of like, I don't know, like a kind of depressing conclusion about this, this, this town's kind of toxic gravity, I guess. Is East Town the Hellmouth? Like, yeah, I mean, maybe. <laughs> um, the, what do you make of the audio of Kevin, the, the child, as a child playing over the end? Like, is this, I mean, we know they shared a kiss, like Evan Peters is in his thirties, he's not a child, but like. Is it that, like, innocence that, like, you know, he's a younger man, like, um, is that what she's thinking about there? Or is she, or is it connected to something else? Because she's been thinking about Kevin as a kid all episode. But what do you make of that audio coming in? And she's been talking about her dad who shot himself. And here is yeah. a young man who's shot in the head. Mm-hmm. Um, and her son has been, he's killed himself. Do we? I don't know if we know what method he used, but... Um, I think that something that maybe sort of metaphorically they're doing with that scene is in this town and many towns around the country with the opioid crisis, a lot of people have had to deal with a lot of dead young people mm-hmm. and, and dead older people as well. But, but to, to, to be so confronted by the physical fact of that, um, in addition to all the sort of metaphysical stuff, um, I think is really scarring especially when it's repetitive you know and i think that mayor sitting there in front of well two dead people um while young women are you know locked upstairs like i i think that that of course that would sort of zoom her back to this sort of i mean i guess her father is kind of the original trauma but the the kevin thing is 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 the one that seems you know rawest for her um, it makes total sense, you know, because it just Zabel's death becomes this kind of part of this like aggregate horror and and grief that she and I think probably many other people in the town are sort of living in all the time. Yeah, the thing um, we're we're going to talk about Betty a little bit more in detail in a second, but the thing that I think this episode does so brilliantly at the beginning is you know Betty Carroll dies and runs her car into um, the light light pole or whatever and uh we see how that affects multiple households in town and to me it just felt like a nice indicator of um how how interconnected and interdependent everything is you know and it's just like it's this this like interlocking network and one domino falls and it just sort of it hits everyone um so it's you know a a blackout is a nice narrative device for various things that we learn in these households, but it also just, I think comes back to that, how everything is connected. Um, let's talk about the, before we get to Betty, let's talk about the girls really quickly. Um, you had, you had sort of floated this theory last week that maybe the kidnapping had to do with someone trying to, uh, take, take girls off the streets and detox them or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. we do see them going through detox. Um, um, you know, uh, Katie helping Missy the way that this other girl Hillary had helped her, but this guy is also sexually assaulting these women. So yeah. I, you know, it's uh, a really disturbing scenario. We're very glad that those girls, um, you know, that Mare found them, and 
Um, I do like all the detective work that we see in this episode. Um, Mayor working her sources um, and uh, seeing them door knock as well. Like that, you know, they have that, that, that conversation, the coffee, the kiss, how do you know what I want? All that sort of stuff. And then they get a call and that call could have taken them directly to the tavern, but it, you know, we, we follow them around door to door to door before they get to the tavern, which is, I thought a really smart piece of thing. Anyway. So what do you, what do you, what landed for you about the girls and, and working the case in that way, this, this episode? I, what I loved about how they solved it, was that they talked to another young woman who maybe hadn't been listened to. Yeah. And they found out that this was kind of like a known thing that this event had happened to her, you know, and she got away and then, you know, sort of lived in fear of him and, and, and an awareness of him, but obviously couldn't or didn't feel comfortable going to the police. And so mayor had to, you know, reach out to her friend who had been or still is a sex worker, but is older and kind of goes to some of the the spots where they work and, and to check on them sometimes and had heard the story. And, you know, I, I think that someone had written to us about how the Jacob Wetterling case, which was a famous murder case in Minnesota from the, I believe, early 90s, um, was eventually solved that they, they talked to local kids and actually listened to them, you know. And I think in this instance, um, it 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 shows that, like, there is a absolute, of course, value in listening to people, um, even if they have been sort of pushed to the margins of society or whatever. Um, I think that was a very credible way for this show to begin that process of of revealing uh, who had been taking these these girls, um, because they would know. And it's very telling that the police really hadn't engaged with them on that level until that point. We got an email um, that we didn't read on air about, I think I called Mayor a good cop. And someone was like, how can you call her a good cop when she plans drugs on this girl? And also, should we be more um, interrogative of cop narratives, given the conversations we've been having about the police force and abuses of power um, over the last year and a half? And, and I agree with that. Um, so I want to be very careful in what I say here about Mayor, which is that um, she is putting in the work on this case, right? And the way this case is solved uh, is not an accidental discovery. It's working sources. And also her empathy for this, like this sex order feels probably like she was someone maybe mayor arrested a couple times and then became maybe a source. And then, you know, they have this like longstanding friendship and mayor has empathy for these girls, for this source, all this sort of stuff like that. And so I, I appreciate them showing us Mare doing this work. And it is work that, you know, winds up hopefully saving these girls who will forever be traumatized by their experience, but are at least still alive. Um, so, yeah. All right, let's talk about the death of Betty Carroll. Uh, it's not funny, but then it is a little funny because that's what Mayor Beastown does. It, it sprinkles in some uh, some humor for us as a treat. Um, so we get, you know, her car crashes. She has a heart attack. Uh, she dies. We get the blackout. We'll talk about that a little bit. Then we get the wake. Uh, and we get the revelation that Betty's uh, husband had an affair with Helen, uh, Mayor's mom. And great bit of comedy cut to mayor just laughing her ass off in the car with her mom and her mom sort of being flustered about it. Um, <laughs> did th does this uh, 
soothe your sorrows a little bit, Richard, this uh, this bit of comedy? I mean, it was really good, and I, it was fun to hear Mayor slash Kate Winslet laughing like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that it was funny at the wake when people were like, oh, she was such a sweet woman or whatever. And it was like, well, no, we've met this character. She, was, <laughs> she wasn't that exactly. Um, you know, calling kids weird looking and <laughs> various stuff. Um, so, I, you know, yes, was it a bit of a kind of high comedy thing to have a, a character say it awake in front of everyone, you know, that this thing happened? Sure. But, but I think it was a nice kind of moment of levity that actually now in retrospect feels like a kind of trick. It's like... This is this is a fun episode, and then she and Zabel are going to go on a date, and then he's going to kiss her, and then it's like, oh wait, no, it's heading toward this bleak, terrible thing. Um, but it also was a good, um, you know, excuse to talk about that. Gene Smart is in a great show coming out on HBO Max uh, this week, I believe, called uh, Hacks, where she plays a Vegas comedian, and she's fabulous in it. So if you like so good. more of that Gene Smart mode, uh, go check out that show. If you go to the Mayor of Easttown uh, IMDb page right now, it is just splashed with hacks ads. And I'm like, very well done. Smart. Good <laughs> job. Um, all right. Let's talk about Siobhan and Frank. In in this blackout moment, um, we get this, you know, and, and this is what I love about the show is it finds moments of interconnectedness. And like the thing that I should say about Helen is like we find out a couple things. We find out Helen had an affair. We find out that Helen's husband killed himself when Mare is talking about her mom in therapy and how, like, her mom just sort of, whenever Mare's dad was having a depressive episode, he would just, like, leave the house and go stay somewhere else. And that her mom just never really, and we know, we know Helen at this point, but she's not just a comedic relief character, right? Because she has this moment with Carrie in the bath, and then we think about who Helen is as a person and, like, how her husband killed himself when her um when her kid was only 13 and then how her grandson killed himself and how she's desperately afraid she's going to lose her great-grandson to carry and all of that like the the space this shows has for depth of character on almost every level um i think is really extraordinary um but for siobhan and frank we get this moment where he checks in with Siobhan and he says something that we I think we've talked about this idea that Siobhan has had to be like more mature than her age because of all the problems with her brother mm-hmm. and maybe ignored um, because they were trying to deal with or help Kevin and um, and having Frank check in with her in this moment I thought was a really I was thinking maybe he was disturbed by what happened with Aaron and what's happening with these other girls. And he's like, maybe I should check in with my, uh, the young girl in my life and see how she's doing, you know? Yeah. You can't take for granted that she's doing well. I mean, you know, by some metrics, they've gotten very lucky with, with Siobhan because she's, you know, on the straight and narrow, her girlfriend is convincing her to apply to schools in California. Like she's, you know, she might be quote getting out, uh, which I guess partly is probably sort of a bittersweet hope for people, in East Town, uh, or parents of kids in East Town. Um, yeah, I thought that scene was nice. I think it also did a lot of work. I think you mentioned this at the beginning of this episode, like to take some, like a lot of the guilty eye off of Frank in any respect, you know? Um, I don't, I do think that he might still have some kind of knowledge, but I think him bringing Aaron baby stuff and then him talking to Siobhan about this, like it, it, I think it goes a lot, a long way toward like showing that he's just kind of a caring person who is a little bit maybe, more attuned to some people's needs than other people around him are. And not like the show is 
definitely about who will Mare end up with or uh, any any of that sort of thing. But I feel like, uh, you know, given all the rumblings of, of troubles with Faye and Frank in this episode, um, you know, the show is kind of trying to put Frank potentially back in the game as like, are Mare and Frank going to reconcile? Are they going to be able to like sort of Mare's in therapy? Uh, let's talk about Mare and therapy. Like if Mare is going to therapy, like maybe she and Frank can, you know, not that they need to get back together, but maybe they might, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's uh, a healing way forward for everyone. Um, like I said, I'm not sure if this whole suspension thing is with some sort of narrative uh, push to get this character who would never go to therapy on her own, maybe into therapy. Um but here she is. And I, this is another scene that, you know, Kate Winslet just crushed talking about the history of mental illness in her family. This is such a common, obviously common. You don't even have to be in, you know, East town, Pennsylvania for this to be common thing where mental health issues are generationally seen and, and ignored and pushed aside and not recognized as a pattern. Um, and hopefully that's something that's evolving and changing as, as the way we talk about mental health is changing. But I just, I love the way that this was written for Mare, um, where she wasn't, she's, it's clear that she's been engaging and she's been reading articles. She's very worried about it, but she's still got a bit of a chip on her shoulder. Like, but you know, we don't, we don't talk about this. Like this isn't something we talk about. Um, so yeah, what did yeah you and I think that also, you know, without saying it outright, it gets at a persistent fear of a lot of people who are in the middle of perhaps that generational um, conference of, you know, mental health problems or whatever, you know, is that like, did I give this to my kid? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and that fear and that guilt, I think, w- again, without it being literalized in, in you know, in Mayor's mouth, like, I, th- I think it was clearly implied that that was a, a really big part of her concern. Um, I also wanted to mention that the therapist uh, is played by Asa Davis, who is a great playwright as well as an actor. Oh, uh, nice. So if you're ever in New York and she has something on, you should go see it. Um, again, this show is just pulling a lot of great people from New York, which I think is fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that, look, therapy, you know, since The Sopranos and certainly before that, I mean, the original Thomas Crown affair, right? Doesn't he talk to a, a therapist in that? Um uh, or maybe he only talks to a therapist in the new one, and that's Faye Dunaway. Okay, anyway, <laughs> like therapy <laughs> is a is a very it's it's maybe an overplayed device. Um, I think a lot of shows get wrong how, at least in my experience, therapy kind of is and how it goes in an individual yeah. session. You know, um, I think Big Little Lies got often got it very wrong. That's what I'll say. I think those scenes in Big Little Lies were electric because the two actors were so good. But yes, yeah. I think you're very right about its methodology was not accurate. Um, mm. But look, it's a device for a reason. It's a really simple and malleable way to get stuff out, you know, um, in a way that characters wouldn't normally speak in, unless in such a formal setting where they're kind of required to speak. Um, so I don't really mind it. And I think when it's as well acted and, and shrewdly written as this was, um, yeah, it, it works really well. I also really liked Mare's discovering the documentary, but not like, confronting Siobhan about it. It was a very mm. natural way for her to discover it, looking for the turtle in the in the blackout. Um and then, you know, it's something that is haunting her for the rest of the episode. This I this this time in her life when she was connected to her son, her really, really connecting to what she lost, not just thinking about 
the end and when it got really bad, but the beginning and how beautiful that was and hearing her voice on that, on that video is gutting, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I just thought that was really, really well done. Um, and then I think the, you know, maybe the last thing we need to talk about in terms of this subject is, you know, when Mary's talking about her father killing himself, um, that really shadows her decision to be, to be like her father, right. To be a cop, like her dad. We knew that that's, you know, she, she became a cop because her dad was a cop and that's, that's what she decided to do. But we didn't know her dad killed himself when she was 13. And that just makes it much stickier. Do you know that that's the road yeah. she decided to go down? So, all right, let's talk about the Rosses, not all of the Rosses, <laughs> but a lot of the Rosses. Uh, we've got Lori and John Lori, as everyone recalls is, is Mary's best friend, her husband, John and their kids, Ryan and Moira. Um, Ryan, we flagged last week because of that scene where he comes in and we're like, could it be Ryan? Um, I've known a couple people who are very suspicious of Ryan. I don't know if this actually clears them of suspicion, but a possible explanation for all of his behaviors and all the times that we've seen him be a little hinky uh, is that he's keeping the secret for his dad, that his dad is cheating. John is cheating on Lori. And, you know, uh, Ryan asks, acts out at school in defense of his sister, but acts out at school, all this sort of stuff. Um, does this satisfy your questions about Ryan or like could could Brian still be involved somehow in everything? I think it satisfies my questions about Ryan almost. I, but I, my hunch is that what this is doing is setting Lori up and maybe everyone kind of around her to be like, okay, the secret has been unearthed. He's cheating again with the same woman and now he's moving out and he's going to deal with it time to move on and then the kind of bigger reveal is going to be oh wait no i'm looking in the wrong direction this is the secret you know mm. and it has to do with aaron or whatever and i don't think that billy killed aaron but i do think that he is the father yeah. based on that interaction where yeah. mayor is clearly now sn- sn- smelling something you know <laughs> yeah. uh and um yeah i i think that i think it was just kind of a, a way to show that like there are other things happening in these people's lives that they're not kind of hanging in stasis when we're not mayor isn't talking to them about the case. Like there, there are things going on. I think that um, the scene with, between Lori and Ryan was just showing like, you know, like Siobhan, like, like a lot of other characters, like what a burden this young person is carrying, you know? Um, and oftentimes how, the family bonds and loyalties can be exploited. I mean, what his father was doing, like keep this between us. That's really shitty. Oh, that, so that's a gross. terrible thing to do. Yeah. Um, and I think that that doesn't mean that John is a terrible person overall necessarily, but like th- there's a lot being put on a lot of people in this show and a lot of kind of care that is good, but a lot that is also kind of manipulated and um, used selfishly. Yeah. The kids are not all right. Like by any stretch. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, I, you know, there's a po- some sh- shred of a possibility that, like, maybe... But I just don't know what Ryan would be doing out in the park in the middle of the night. So I, I got to clear Ryan Ross. I think he's clear. I think his whole weird behavior was his stress around his dad. Um, and the kid can wield a lunch tray. I mean, it was I impressive. Was yeah. <laughs> I was impressed. But put that kid into therapy as well, please. Um, the, is the, do we feel like the Prowler question is solved by Mayor tackling this old man and with dementia because the ferret drawing came back and so i was like yeah. is this actually gonna be uh, 
something it came back again in this episode but like is do you feel like that's all sewn up the prowler question i think that's sewn up i think the show really missed an opportunity for her source to not say draw me like one of your east town ferrets ferret girls <laughs> yeah I Tell think that like, was a mistake. Oh, um, I think there should be a rival basketball team called the East. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and I think that I think it's I think that the 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 solve the solving, if you want to call it that, of the of the Prowler question is is a nice kind of way to round out this world. That it's like a lot of this stuff that happens in this town, any town, is pretty prosaic and mundane and not actually like some sinister thing, you know. But there is sinister stuff happening, but like it, I don't know. I think it just gives levels to this portrait of this town um, that uh, I think is, is, is smart because um, there's a lot going on that could make this whole thing feel, feel very unrealistic. And then to kind of have this kind of banal sort of, oh, it's just a confused older man. Like, you know, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. There's also a little bit of... Um nice comedy there because like Mary has been completely humiliated by what has happened she's sitting there sort of sulkily vaping on the sidewalk and then sable walks by and she's just had this awful date with him um and it's just um you know yeah uh sorry r.i.p sable okay let we just have three more things to talk about really quickly deacon mark um Deacon Mark gets, you know, beat up. Uh, some pe- people in town, the word is out on what, on his other allegation. He's been uh, beat up by some kids from a pizza joint, question mark. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think it's Cousin Dan uh, has this conversation with Mark and Mark explains what happens. Fills in a little bit more of the timeline of that night because I do believe him in this moment. Um, and I believe that this is the end of Deacon Mark's, you know, and like I could see Cousin Dan going to mayor with this information. But I believe that this is the end of Deacon Mark's uh, involvement, guilt. Um, he's guilty of driving Aaron to the scene of the crime. He's guilty of hiding her bike. He's guilty of um, all of that. But I don't think he killed her. What do you think? Well, I think, first of all, like it you know, there's a kind of an accidental relevance here to like actual news where like, you know, Biden partly ran on a platform of, of, of stopping the scourge of pizza joint kids. He clearly <laughs> has not done a lot to that. And I think that was a really important thing to show on this show. Um, <laughs> East town ferrets and the pizza joint kids. Yeah, right. exactly. I mean, pizza joint kids have been menacing me since I was a teenager. Um, yeah, I think, and I think that if that, if this, if this is the end of, of the Deacon's kind of involvement in the case, I think, I mean, this maybe sounds bad to say, but like I, 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 th- I kind of like narratively that whatever happened in the past with him is is left ambiguous. You know, like, did, or or maybe I'm reading it wrong. Is it ambiguous? But like, I, I I'm glad that we're not having to go and like f- locate like yes. the exact truth of that story because Correct. that's not what the show is about. And I think that showing this guy as sort of this who has a very clearly a dark past. Uh, just passing through the town uh, into further darkness and maybe out again. Um, I, again, that kind of makes sense to me. Like, I, I'm glad that they didn't try to too neatly fold it into the the bigger, you know, the, the main story. Okay, I I agree with you. I I, I think keeping it ambiguous is more interesting. Um, and I think and it, and it's a good way to slow roll out information about the night. You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't he come forth with this information? Well, I have this allegation against me. You know what I mean? And he's not just a, like, once again, there's just a depth of character here. Like, I felt 
for him when he was bloody and crying and talking to Dan about what happened. Like, uh, maybe I shouldn't, but I did. So the, but the show is so good at that. It's just making you feel for characters you didn't expect that you would. Um, I'm, I'm doing, I'm calling an audible. I, I think you do that in basketball sometimes, certainly in, in uh, football, but um and I'm switching our last two topics. So okay. we're going to talk about Billy Ross, and yep. then we're going to talk about my real suspect. So okay. Billy, Billy fucking Ross, hundred percent the mother, the father of Aaron's kid. That's that's how I feel right now. How do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I think Mayor looking at that Rolling Rock and being like, "There are prints on that. There's DNA on that." I think that <laughs> yeah. was like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I, my hunch would also be that Aaron's dad doesn't know. Kenny, yeah. Yeah, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So, Billy, definitely the father. Do I think he killed her? I don't know. There is a possibility that she was asking him for money for the surgery, mm. and she had a gun, or he had a gun. Who knows? There's a struggle, and she died. And if you go back, there's plenty of moments where Billy looked weird and distracted and guilty. But I think it's going to be like the Deacon, where like Billy has more information but not all of the information. And he has a reason for not telling it because it's um, uh, incest that he, uh, you know, and um, sex with a minor and all this sort of stuff. But um, I have to imagine he probably gave her that locket. Maybe that locket is like the date her mom died. Like, you know, cause her mom died of leukemia. She went to go stay with Billy and maybe that's when um, this whole thing started. So that, seems to be that and so yeah i think we're dealing with three mysteries here we're two episodes from the end we've got we know who took katie and missy mm-hmm. we think we know who the father of um Aaron's kid is and i'm gonna i'm gonna call an audible <laughs> uh not that it's a mystery because he's acting shifty as hell in this episode but i'm back to dylan he's always the boyfriend i'm back to dylan uh, Dylan uh, maybe accidentally killed Aaron, given the conversation he has with Brianna, Brianna revealing. And once again, there's sympathy in this episode for Brianna, who was such a monstrous asshole at the beginning of the season. And now she's like, well, there goes college because I was a stupid kid and I did this really stupid thing. And, you know, but she didn't yeah. kill Aaron. And so, uh, you know, and she's asking questions about where Dylan was and he angrily sends her away. And then does this shifty shit with uh, Aaron's best friend, Jess, the journals, burning the journals, Jess has a piece of uh, information that she scrolled away from the journal in her pocket. I'm curious to see what that is. That I feel like is maybe going to be paternity reveal. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. But um, yeah. How are you feeling on the Dylan of it all? Yeah. And I think that the Jess thing is so heartbreaking because... yeah. She was her friend, you know, and who knows what her level of involvement was, but you have to kind of think that she went to her mom and then to Lori kind of to deflect, which is like, you know, be like, oh, actually it was Dylan's not the dad. And so kind of putting suspicion on someone else, Mm -hmm. um, which like is understandable as a strategy, but uh, is sort of shitty and 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 dishonoring her friend you know disappointing yeah you know like you know this is her dead friend and she's kind of spilling a secret just to kind of take attention off of well dylan at least um you know so i uh, yeah i mean it's I, i feel like this is kind of where the show has been headed ultimately even if you know we've all had our theories but like this kind of potential reveal of like like our emailer said, or, you know, it's it just some stupid accident or 
something gone wrong, you know? Um, and I think that the way that the, the missing girls thing has been solved with like, it was just some random guy who we hadn't met before. Like mm-hmm. it was a whole other story. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that Aaron's death is much more like local. And I know I don't mean this in the kind of modern context, but like pathetic. It's just like, ugh, you know, um, it's, the boy, it's always the, you know, it's the ex, but it's like, it's always the boyfriend. And the fact that like, yeah, there's this other, like that we were chasing one suspect and the fact that there are three, this rando from out of town, um, Dylan and Billy, you know, um, and maybe we can think a little bit more in the coming episodes about sort of what that trifecta means. Oh, but- hi, everyone. Uh, Joanna here jumping in, jumping into the podcast from the future. Oh, uh, no, uh, we recorded this podcast kind of early in the week. And I have since been thinking a lot and I've completely changed my mind about who I think done it. I don't think I, I have I have a better theory, I guess, is what I want to say. So uh, I'm, I laid it all out on VF.com. So you can go to VF.com. But basically... Dylan, Billy, sure, but we still got two more episodes to go. There has to be more mystery, right? So um, I'm centering my focus on John Ross, and you can read all about it over on VF.com. All right, this is me uh, going away, so the episode can come back. All right, bye. Here we are. I'm excited to find, I, like I said, I haven't seen what comes next, so I'm excited to see. I'll be missing Zabel a mm, lot mm-hmm. uh, until we see um Colin in our dreams I don't know where where will you be Richard cemetery just standing over the grave weeping Aww, yeah weeping. yeah yeah holding a red rose black veil over my face it's actually gonna be pretty, pretty chic but um <laughs> oh my god but sad yes. but sad uh and chic while I'm there I'll, I'll be tweeting from Rylos writing at vf.com Joanna until it's penultimate episode next week right yeah, uh, I mean, I I will definitely be checking out that tortellini special oh at Colin's in, friend's in restaurant, <laughs> the memorial tortellini special. Um, and I'll I'll leave a bite for him uh, at the grave. And uh, and you can also find me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. You can find us on pennyfair.com. And we will be back next week uh, with some more mare. Bye. <laughs> I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.